Good morning, Chirocasters. Uh, the other day, someone asked me, what's the longest running company that I've been using uh, since I've been a chiropractor? And that company would have to be Now You Know. We started in 1997. That's right, 1997. Some of you I mean, were like little kids at that time. And uh, we started using them for our website, uh, which is theadjustment.com. And they have been nothing but amazing. We've had such incredible results uh, with our website using Now You Know. So I highly recommend uh, Now You Know uh, for customization and great website. And now here's the podcast. Today's topic is going to be um, autism and neurodiversity. Autism and neurodiversity. So I, um, I, I don't know how, honestly, I have become so fascinated with autism. It, it wasn't my intent. You know, when I was in school, um, like you guys 30 years ago, uh, sitting in these seats, um, my, th- my thing was, was, was to take care of athletes. I want to be a, a hockey chiropractor, being a hockey player myself. Um, so I just want to take care of hockey players. Um, but it sort of evolved uh, over time. And, and obviously back in the 80s when I graduated, autism was like nothing, you know. Uh, and over the years, I started getting more and more patients on the spectrum and saying, like, I better learn how to do this uh, because obviously this is getting bigger and bigger. And I'm really glad that I, I've taken the time and uh, spent hours uh, and uh, now years studying um, the brain and studying autism because now I get a chance to really help a lot, of, a lot of kids. Matter of fact, the last three patients that I adjusted last night were three kids on the spectrum, all three of them nonverbal and all relatively new patients. So it was really cool, one after the other, to have to see these three different kids, three different ages. One's like three, one's eight, and one's 15. And all three of them have very different presentations. And that's the really neat thing, or interesting thing about autism, which I want you to remember, is um, the Autism Speaks has this saying that when you meet a child with autism, you meet a child with autism. So you don't, there's no absolute, right? It's not like, you know, when you have chicken pox, it's pretty much chicken box. No matter who has it, you get all these crops of these you know, raised rashes, and it's itchy, and it lasts about 10 to 14 days. And you know, it's from the varicella zoster virus, and it's all like very, very laid out, like very linear. You can just, like, everybody is pretty much the same. Autism is like that. There are some kids who have gotten, who are, are on the spectrum because they've had infections, and we'll talk about that. There are some kids who are autistic because they've had vaccination reactions. Uh, there are some kids who have autism because they were born with some sort of a genetic thing, and not genetic in terms of, of a mutation, like we mentioned this last time, uh, not a genetic because of, of, of a, a thing that went down from the parents, but a, a de novo, a, a new mutation. So, the, so, and there's also kids who, ha, who do have like congenital uh, aut- autism. So in other words, it's because of fragile X syndrome or because of Angelman syndrome or because of uh, Williams syndrome. So there's all these reasons. Like, so when you meet a child with autism, it is not, you're not going to see a typical, there's not like a typical autism case. All autistic kids don't just flap their hands and not talk and squeal. And that's not standard. There is no standard uh, to autism. Very important to understand. Another very important thing to understand, too, about autism is that a child, like, you, you need to s- stop this thought process because I get it from a lot of you guys. Like, I can't wait till I'm out of school, then I never have to crack a book again. No, 
No, no, no, no, no. Then you could be like the rest of the, the reason the chiropractic profession, one of the reasons why we are where we are is because most of us don't crack any books after we graduate. And we just kind of do the same thing repetitively for like 30, 40 years and then retire. That's not really going to get us anywhere, right? What we need to do is keep on top of things over and over and over. And I, and I am begging you, if you're interested in pediatrics, that you have got to get on information constantly. Look, scouring, scouring different things. So for instance, like here's a, a journal, uh, a, an online journal called Spectrum, and it has all these amazing articles. So this is like one topic on the brain and all these amazing articles on you know, autism in the brain that I think is really amazing. Here's another, um, here's another journal called, uh, uh, online journal called Futurity, where um, they, they just get great things from, uh, from different universities. And they talk about you know, different um, you know, research that's happening at different universities. So you have to be on these different you know, listservs. Scientific American is a great resource uh, for this kind of stuff. So I'm on a listserv from Scientific American. Um, and here's a, an article just came out uh, uh, last week. Serotonin revived as a possible target for autism treatments. Um, the thing I think is really interesting about this is, you know, serotonin, they're probably, um, what they're gearing up to is to try to come up with some sort of drug, you know, uh, to use like, like antidepressants for, for kids because it's SSRIs. So if you prevent the reuptake of serotonin, you can help autistic kids. But that's, that's, a, that's not the fix they need, right? What it, the fix they need is to have their brains figure out how to do this on their own. Right? And that's what adjustments and neurological exercises and diet have to do for you. Right? So that's why you know, it's so important because I look, at, I look at this research and I don't say, great, another new drug for autism. What I say is, how can we do this? Right? I look at this stuff and I investigate and say, what, what do we have to do to get more serotonin into this kid? Right? What do we have to do to help these different children? You know, one of the most important books you have to read aside from Disconnected Kids by Melillo that I've already talked to you guys about, is you've got to read the polyvagal theory book by Stephen Borges, right? I, I've mentioned this multiple times. Um, you've got to read this book because he is really onto something, right? M most kids who are on the spectrum, with a couple of exceptions over the years I've been doing this, most kids on the spectrum are sympathetically driven. They are stuck in sympathetics. That's why they can't digest. That's why they can't sleep. That's why they can't rest. That's why they don't have eye contact. Because they're, they're like, you know, they're just like boiling all the time. Um, and you need to calm them down, right? We want to get them, you know, 212 is boiling. Imagine you live your whole life at 211, right? You're always at 211, 211, 211. Always like on the ready, just, just one little thing makes you burst and then they start flipping out and then they start screaming and yelling and pitching fits and biting and pinching and punching and stuff. You know, you have to be very careful. Yesterday, I was adjusting this one boy and he, uh, he was, he's definitely having a, a tough uh, couple of weeks and he nearly headbutted me. And I have to be really quick when you're adjusting someone and they start going like, like I'm moving away. So he was like, Whoo! and I was like, wow, that would have been my head, right? So understand that's, that's just part of the challenges that you have to get and you have to be have lightning quick reflexes, right? But, but the, the key is to, to research this and to expect this, right? And to accept it. Like, I'm not mad at him. I didn't yell at him. It was nothing. It was like, oh, this is what he does, right? And I know the kid who used to always pinch me. I would, I would adjust him. He'd start grabbing my leg and pinching me. You just handle it, right? You just handle it and love, love on him enough that eventually that stops, right? Eventually this sort of behavior, you know, stops because especially when you invoke the polyvagal theory, when you get the vagus nerve 
you know, working better, their vagus nerve, they calm down. They start looking you in the eyes, right? They start having social connections that they didn't before because the vagus nerve is so intimately connected with socialization. So that's why, you, you know, research like this is so important and I highly suggest that you, you guys really, really get involved with this, uh, with research. Um, and, and this is another great book, uh, Neurodiversity. Uh, they changed the title. It's, this is Dr. Tom Armstrong. Uh, they changed the title to like the power of neurodiversity, whatever, but um, it's, I, I read this book about 10 years ago. I love this book because what it talks about is this. You know, uh, Armstrong says, over the past 60 years, we've seen this huge growth in psychological illnesses, right? Unbelievable, unprecedented growth in psychological illnesses. Um, in 1952, with the first uh, DSM, which is the th thing my wife you know, made uh, you guys learn uh, in your uh, psychology class, um, there's 100 categories of illnesses. Now there's over 300. Um, and actually, there's, there's way over 300 because that was by 2000. Now there's probably DSM-5. I don't even know what number, but it's probably close to 500 different illnesses. Um, so, so what essentially this means is that nearly every individual in the country may have a psychiatric illness to one degree or another. That, that's, that's what they're gearing towards. The, the reason that they created DSM-5 the way they did is to get more drugs into people, right? To create more openings for more diagnosis, right? So a lot of people say, well, the reason there's a higher autism rate and a higher ADHD rate is because they've broadened the, um, the diagnostic criteria, which is absolutely true for about 50% of the cases. But not of the volume of kids that we're seeing today. Not, not, not at like, I think the number is something like one in five children have some sort of neurobehavioral disorder. One in five. It was not like that before. Diagnosed or not diagnosed, I don't care. It's just there's a crazy amount of kids out there that are having these sort of issues. And um, the, here's the big problem. The big problem isn't that the kids are having these issues. The big problem is what happened when these kids turn 18? Like, have you ever thought about that? You got some kid who's like uh, this one boy yesterday who was, who was nearly headbutted me, and he's going, and he's going like this. And this kid is not going to be working when he's 18. He's not going to college, right? So who's supporting him? Mom and dad. What's the lifetime cost of supporting him? Over $3 million, okay? And so like you and I are all, we've all been working, right? So we all pay Uncle Sam, you know, our, our Social Security and Medicare taxes and state taxes and all that kind of stuff. This young man probably, thank God he's in our office, but if it wasn't our office, his future was to never pay taxes and always take from the system. That's a big problem. That, according to Dr. Melillo, my mentor in this, that is the crisis of our time, is what's going to happen when all these children, this wave of autistic children who are unable to work, when they hit 18 and they're no longer covered by going to school and they're no longer covered with the child services that they're getting now. That's why you gotta jump on this bandwagon. Because if we don't do it, nobody, is, nobody else is, trust me, they're all feeding off them, they're all preying off these kids, they're not helping them, right? We are the ones who really, as a, as a group, have to help these kids. So this epidemic is now of, of neuro, of psychiatric illnesses is pathologizing a huge chunk of the American population. But it's kind of like, it, what we need is a paradigm shift, is what we need, right? Because we don't pathologize a lily for not having petals, right? If you ever think about that, like if you look at a lily, do you think like a rose criticizes the lily? It says, what's wrong with you, right? I have like 150 petals, you have none, you are wrong. 
right? You should grow petals. You have a petal deficiency disorder, right? That's not what, you know, the, the, matter of fact, there's a great Native American say, saying that says something to the effect of, no tree is so foolish to be angry at its friends, right? Because trees, what do they do in the wind, right? They're all going together like this in the wind and they're all holding hands in the wind, right? And that is so important to understand that in nature, things happen the way it's supposed to happen and we are pointing fingers. And that's why what Armstrong is saying is we should not, that, that, okay, so there's diversity in religion and there's diversity in race and there's diversity in gender. There also has to be neurodiversity. There has to be neurodiversity. In other words, we have to start, start now being accepting of whoever, like whatever that person's neurological health is, is okay. Now, as chiropractors, we can help that person, right? But we can't, we're not saying this is bad or wrong, right? We're not going to, to take care of an autistic child to say, I'm going to fix him. I'm going to make him talk. That's not the point. The point is to make that child or the adult for that matter, the best they can be, right? Within their neurodiverse issues, with ever limitations, right? We know limitations of matter, right? Principle number six. With ever limitations of matter they happen to have, let's make them their best. That to me is what's so important. So let's talk about some of these things. So like we, we talk about this in, in our, the health challenges class. Crawling is critical, right? I had a, a student come up to me uh, before uh, who talked to me about crawling and she said, you know, my, my sister's friend or some, somebody has a baby who's not crawling right and, and what do you think about that? And I said, it's, if they don't crawl right, it's wrong. There's really no middle ground. There's no like, well, that'll be okay. Now, you can't say, well, if they're not crawling right, that's bad and can lead to all these bad problems because you don't know, right? It's certainly possible that kids who are not crawling correctly can lead completely normal, healthy lives and be completely neurotypical and everything. However, if you see a problem, shouldn't you say, I should fix this or attempt to fix it or, or attempt to strengthen whatever weakness it is, right? So she asked me, she said, do you, know, do you think abnormal crawling is bad? And this was my answer. If I walked in like this, would you think this is bad? What would you say? You say, all right, buddy, you, you, something happened? Did you hurt your leg? You hurt your knee, right? If I'm limping, then something is wrong and we would try to do something to, to strengthen it as much as we can within the, the limitations of that particular person. So same thing with this. We see crawling, we see walking, all these kind of things. We want to see a normal cross-crawl pattern. When you look at a child who's walking, this, is, this child later on uh, had uh, developed autism. And what you look at here, if you look at, as the child, you see how the, the child, first here's the, the right foot, here's the left foot, but this is how he's walking. Can you see that? He's not moving his hips, he's not moving his arms, right? He's, he's walking like an automaton, you know, like a robot. Um, so that's a very important hint, right? When you see early clues like this, you know that there's already a problem because these are normal things like walking, talking, crawling, rolling, all these things should be normal and natural like we talked about before. And if they're not, something is wrong. You know, if a child does not have protective reflexes, that is a problem, right? We showed you this, you know, um, if a child's face has a, a sort of like an absent look to it, that's a problem 
There's a new thing that they're researching now. And we don't see this like 100% of the time, but we do see this in children who later on would become more severely on the spectrum. Like look at this, I, this kid is cuter, cuter than a button, but let's look at, at him. And let me turn off the, one of the lights here so you can get a better view. What's going on with his eyes? They're crossed. And the important thing that they're now studying is his lip. Do you see what's going on with his lip? Does that look like a normal lip? Right? Normally, if you're holding your lips together like this, you're going to hold them like this. But he's got this tented thing. You see how it goes up here in the middle? Right? So it's straight on the bottom and it goes up in the middle. They call that tented. Right? So it's a flat lower lip and a tented upper lip. They call that Moebius syndrome. This is a whole new thing that they're studying. So I'm giving you cutting edge research. It's called Moebius syndrome or Moebius mouth. And what that shows very often, if these kids aren't checked early neurologically and they just let it go, then these kids later on have higher tendencies to develop more severe autism. So the key is early detection and correction. Right? If we see something, if, if, if a baby is exhibiting things that show that their brain is not working the way it's supposed to, it is our responsibility to bring it up and to talk to the mom and dad and say, we've got to work on this because here's the thing, you, you know, let's say this was a patient in my office and I'd say to the mom, what's going on with the eyes? And what do you think that she would say most of the time? One of two responses, A, oh, I never noticed. And you'd be stunned at what people don't notice. Uh, it happened a couple of days ago. We had a, a child come in who was like 10 months old, and the kid's eyes were like this. And I was like, do you ever notice what's going on in the eyes? And she said, no, what's happening to the eyes? So what did I do? I, I took out my phone, took a picture, and I showed it to her. And she's like, oh, my God. I said, we got to start working on the kid's eyes. you got to start working on tracking to, to get his eyes. Because his eyes, uh, I, I say, he's, as he's watching me, he's going like this, like a frog. He's got one eye moving and one eye not moving. Right? That's not normal, right? Do you understand? As an amphibian, right? Lower brain, right? The higher brain is not connecting, right? This is important stuff for us to explain to our patients. So same thing with this. So a person will either say, I never noticed, or B, oh, uh, they said it's fine, he'll outgrow it, or, or we'll check it later, you know. We've really nothing we can do right now because he's so young, so we'll just check it later. I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Let's just hold on to it and check it later. Uh... So you should just wait until like the pattern just really sinks in and then we should look at it, right? That's just a bad idea. Just the same way like if I'm limping like this, you say, oh, you know, what's going on, doc? Well, I hurt my knee. Well, what are you doing about it? Well, I'm just gonna wait for about a year and then I'll see what's going on. <laughs> oh, you, yeah, you'd all be laughing, right? But that's what they're doing with little kids. As if, this, as if it doesn't matter. And I don't understand this, right? And I think this is maybe why I've gotten so involved with this, because when I, when I, the more I, this started in the late 90s when the, the autistic population started really, you know, growing. Uh, and when Dr. Webster kept on saying, you really should look more into this. Um, and the more I looked into it, the more absurd I was hearing people talking about kids who were having all these delays and not worrying about it. So I started studying and studying and studying more. I think that's how I kind of fell into this. So here are the two major hallmarks of autism. The two major hallmarks of autism, according to, according to DSM-5, they've changed it. DSM-4 had slight differences. 
the DSM-5 essentially housed it into two pieces. Number one is deficits in social communication and social interaction. So what does that mean? What does a deficit in social communication mean? Well, well, they don't talk or they have problems talking, right? Whether it's they don't talk well, they don't talk much, they don't talk at all. That's the deficit in social communication, right? And what does it mean by the social interaction? That means back and forth, which means eye contact, right? So they have deficits in eye contact. A lot of kids with autism will not look you in the eyes, or they'll do look very briefly and scatteredly. Um, and they don't have back and forth interaction, like you know when you and I talk. You know, if I was talking to Dan and I asked Dan a question, he he talked back to me, and he'd probably answer the question that I asked him, right? Unless he didn't want to, um, but he probably would answer. But but a, a child with autism, you'd say, you know, or you know. Hey, buddy, how you doing today? And they'd say, like, how you doing today? And, and like, like, echolalia, right? The clues of, like, or they say something completely different, like, orange, yellow, red. Yeah. Yeah. And never make them wrong, right? Never make a child wrong when they answer you in a funny way and an unexpected way. They're not wrong. No, no, buddy. Hey, I said, how are you doing today? Right? There's no, no, no judgment with this. If they want to talk about orange, red, and blue, then let them talk about it, right? Ask, what's orange, red, and blue? Right, follow their conversation, right? Get into their world, right? That's the key to, to, to working with these kids. So that's the first thing is these deficits in social communication, social interaction. And the second thing is restricted repetitive behaviors. So as example, perfect. I wish I took a picture of it. I should have thought about this last night, but we were so busy I didn't have a chance to think about this. One of our little autistic patients was playing. We have a billion like little cars in my office for the kids to play with, and most of the kids, you know, they, they, we have this like um, this new thing where you take the car and it kind of rolls down this sort of thing. You know, this really cool Fisher Price thing. He took those cars and he just lined them up. So you got six cars all like this, all facing this way, exact coordinates. Like you could probably have mapped it out with exact longitude and latitude like facing perfectly, and he would, he'd line them out like this, and he'd look at them, and he'd line them up, and he'd turn up a little one, and that's how he was playing with them, right? Because that's his little brain, right? That was fun to him, to line them up. Now, all the, all the other boys are, you know, going like this, or they're, they're crashing the cars together, uh, and, or one boy and another boy are playing, and they're having like a race, but these kids are not doing it together, right, because of these deficits in social communication interaction. They're doing it apart, right? They call that joint attention, and joint not meaning joints like an arm, you know, or whatever. Joint meaning like together, you know. So Dan and I are playing with cars, and we're playing, and he's going, room, and I'm going, room, right? That's joint attention. So if he's playing, and I'm playing, and we're playing the same kind of game together. But if I was a, a child with autism, so Dan would say, you know, be going, room, and I'd just be lining my cars up like this, not even paying attention that he was even there, right? That's how, you know, these kind of things go. Now they say, oh, I don't know why this happened. They say that a rise in autism due to genetics, but like we talked about last week, we don't see kids who are, have autism have parents with autism, right? Have you ever seen, I've never seen it. I've never seen it, right? A direct connection, right? Now we talked last week about like schizophrenia, or two weeks ago, about schizophrenia, you know, uh, severe depressive disorders, right? Then I'll see a lot of times these kids will, 
uh, end up having a child uh, with, uh, a parent with that will have a child with autism. But I don't see a child with autism creating another child with autism, right? They say that autism has stereotypical behaviors and odd interactions and language delays. But if you really think about it, all babies have stereotypical behaviors, right? How does a child learn how to walk? How many times do they try until they actually walk? Hundreds, if not thousands of times. Would you tell them to stop? Right? Would you say, why? Would you just stop? The, you're getting up, you're falling, you're getting up, you're falling. Just, just stop already, will you? Right? You don't say that. But a child with autism who's doing this and flapping his hands, right? That's a stereotypical behavior too, that they're not stopping. But the difference is, is, is that when a little infant is trying to learn how to walk and they do the stereotypical, they get up and they fall down. And they get up and they fall down, right? At that age, it's fine. But when you're six, it's not fine to do that anymore. It's not fine to do stereotypical behaviors anymore, right, when you're six, right? So st the stereotypical behaviors are not wrong behaviors. They're the right behaviors at the wrong time. You understand? They just never outgrew the behaviors. So stereotypical behaviors are completely normal. They're just at the wrong time. Same thing with, with talking, right? With talking. Uh, autistic kids have echolalia. And so uh, yesterday, I was talking to this one boy, the one who tried to headbutt me, and I said, um, you know, hi. And he said, hi. And, and at the end, after I adjusted him, I said, you know, that, say thank you. He said, thank you, right? So he can talk, but he d is not particularly wordy, right? And he usually just says the words that I say to him. That's his most common you know, way of communicating with me. So... But isn't that how most kids learn how to talk? Right? You know, well, what is this? Glasses. Glasses. Say glasses. 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 And how many thousands of times do you say that until they say glasses? Right? Is that echolalia? Does a one-year-old or a two-year-old have echolalia? No. They're just learning how to talk. So it's the same thing. It's the right thing at the wrong time. Right? A six-year-old shouldn't be doing that. A two-year-old, it kind of makes sense that you're teaching them what these different things are. You got to turn, you know, computer, laptop, laptop, right? But a six-year-old, you shouldn't have to be saying laptop, laptop. Got it? There were, were primitive reflexes. They're supposed to be there. When you're first born, you're supposed to have them. But in the same vein, if you're a six-year-old kid and you have primitive reflexes, you're not supposed to have them anymore. So it's the right thing at the wrong time. And that's what Melillo talks about in his book, Autism, is that these things are, are an extreme of normal behavior, right? These are normal behaviors. We expect all these behaviors to occur. We expect echolalia. We expect stereotypical behaviors. We expect primitive reflexes when you're a little munchkin, when you're a little kiddo. But when you're a six-year-old, we don't expect this anymore, right? So they're normal behaviors at an abnormal time. Now, <clears throat> one of my favorite videos, and we don't have time to talk about it right now, uh, to show it, but one of my favorite videos, should you, and you should really check this out, is uh, Amanda Bags in my language. And what happens is she uh, is a fully nonverbal autistic person, but she has learned how to type uh, and communicate through um, a computer the same way that um, Stephen Hawking, who passed away recently, was able to you know type his words. You know, used to like use his eye to you know pick out letters and stuff. She can actually physically type and. What she'll say is, I have a language. 
it's just not your language. You criticize me for not having your language. I criticize you for not having mine. Right? So it's the whole neurodiverse idea. Like, what's wrong with this picture? Right? Why should I have your language? Why is it bad for this person to not speak? Who, where is it written that you have to speak? Right? Now, it, it's helpful in our society to speak, for sure. But it is not a have to. Right? And I think that's super important that she you know, brings that out. Another thing that autistic people, uh, people with autism have uh, issues with is this. Like, um, if I say, oh, say, can you, what's the, what's the next sentence or the next word? See, right? I pledge of allegiance. If I say the word white, what do you say? If I, uh, opposites. If I say up, you say. If I say high, you say. Right. That's called mind reading. That's called mind reading. You all have the ability to mind read. So you all, can, if I say these words, you can say the opposite. If I, if I have a sentence that you know most of the sentence, you can probably finish the end of the sentence, right? A child with autism or an adult with autism cannot do that. They do not have that ability. They can't finish the sentence. They can't do opposites very well because that's part of the mirror neuron, mirror neurons that they are that they have. They're having problems with. So when they, when you say white to them, they say desk. Because that's just what they think of, you know. You say up, they say, you know, picture. And you're like, okay. And because in their brain, what they're looking at, they're thinking up and they're thinking of a picture that they saw was something that was up in the air. So they're thinking picture, right? So what, what's, what happens is that they don't have this ability to mind read, which makes it very difficult in social communication, right? Because, you know, when you're talking with someone and you kind of know where they're going and then you can join in the conversation and because you're saying, yeah, I went to the Braves game. And, oh, yeah, I saw that, too. That was really cool. And they, they, he hit the home. Yeah, the home run. Did you see that? That was an amazing home run. It was a triple grand slam, this, that, and the other. And you guys can have this great conversation. But imagine them not understanding. You're talking about a Braves game. And they're talking about well, you know, the computer you know, program that I was working on. And you're like, wait, we're talking about the Braves game, right? And it's just something that they don't quite understand. And they have little brains. They don't, that's a, very, it's a big challenge in their social communication. So that it's called mind blindness. But that's why the internet and text messaging is fabulous for these kids. Right? So we can criticize and say these kids are spending too much time on, on computers, which is absolutely true. They're spending way too much time on this kind of stuff. However, there is some advantages. Because a lot of these uh, uh, people who have autism, people who are on the spectrum, this is a great career for them. You know, to do something remotely or do something at home or do something where they just sit at a desk and they can type away and code and stuff like that. Why not? Right? And who says they have to be some great social you know, creature to work at an institution? Right? As long as you can you know, perform your, your, your work, that's the key thing. Right? And that's what Dr. Armstrong was really talking about is with neurodiversity, we should uh, embrace people with differences because a lot of people with uh, autism have savant level abilities. In other words, like super genius level abilities in very, very, very narrowed areas. Why not let them do that? Right? If they can do that, fabulous. Right? You know, like if you're, who's seen the movie Rain Man? Right? If you haven't seen the movie Rain Man, you really should watch it. It's one of the best portrayals of someone with uh, autism I've ever seen. Uh, Dustin Hoffman won an Academy Award. And um, it was amazing what, like, the, and it's, it's not as loosely based on truth, but you know, he counted cards, right? 
Well, if you can count cars, you can probably count other things. And, and, that, and, and that might be a useful thing to some company that needs some things counted, right? So why not, right? So with a neurodiverse idea, we can allow this you know, to happen. <clears throat> um, now, hundreds of years ago, I want you to think about this. I want, and I want you to really get this. Hundreds of years ago, that we still had autistic people. This is not a new phenomenon. What is new is the amount of people we have with autism. But the fact that autism has been around for centuries is well documented. So a child with autism, uh, or even an adult, an adult, let's say, with autism, a thousand years ago, right here in Cherokee Nation, right? That's where we're, we're standing, right here in Cherokee Nation. What were they in, in the tribes, uh, in the, like a Cherokee na a tribe? What was the function of an adult with autism? They had a function, a very, very specific function, a very high-level function. What do you think? What was that? Mm, I don't, they weren't building much, but that you're on the right path. All right, so as someone with autism has an unbelievably amazing memory. How were they functioning a thousand years ago, right here? In Cherokee Nation. Yeah, they were the storytellers. They were the medicine men, right? Oh, wise one, is this a mushroom that I can eat? Oh, no, no, no. Bad mushroom, bad mushroom. Good mushrooms around the rock, up the stream, by the red-faced, you know, mountain, right? So they would, they would know exactly where to go for certain things, right? And, you know, where do we go for the, for the buffalo, right? We need to find the buffalo, you know, and they would put their ear to the ground and they would look and do whatever, whatever it is. That, the buffalo will be here, right? And you would just follow them and they'd be right because they had the savant level abilities to do things that most people couldn't do, right? So autism is well documented that people with autism have been around for centuries, for millennia, right? There's just the amount of autism that we have now. That's the difference, right? That's where I, I talked about uh, at the ICPA club a couple weeks ago, our brains, we're growing you know, our brains differently today, um, which is why there's such a huge amount of children on the spectrum and adults on the spectrum. But the fact that it's been around for centuries is well documented. Uh, and we haven't, we're not talking about this yet, but with ADHD, was there a function with someone with ADHD a thousand years ago? So a thousand years ago, what was the ADHD function in a tribal community? What were they doing? Very specific. Were they the ones like sitting around, like going like this, you know, kind of hanging out, relaxing, putting their feet up, you know? They're the hunters, right? They're the, hunt they're the ones who stayed up at night with a spear or a bow and arrow in their hands, listening for that, cr that crack as an animal or another you know, member of a, a warring tribe came you know, close to them. And they're the ones who would wake everybody up because that was, that's what they did, right? And now we're asking these children, the children on the spectrum, the children with ADHD, says, sit down and shut up in a classroom. Right? But you got the kid with ADHD who's just sitting there like this and like, I can't get control of this child in my class. He's just bouncing all over the place. That's because he's a warrior. And yet this other kid who's not paying attention to the teacher at all, she's, he's looking over here and he's imagining all these numbers in his head, right? He's just, like, she's talking and he's just saying, like, here's all the numbers of all the baseball players that I've studied this year. So this is, 
here's the Braves and the Cardinals and the A's. And he's just imagining all these different people. And she's sitting there going, wah, 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 wah. and they're saying, I can't believe these people aren't listening to me. But you're not talking to them, right? Oh, you got to talk to a warrior different than you talk to a medicine man, different than you talk to someone who's neurotypical, right? And that's the failure in today's education is that where everybody's educating to the neurotypical child, but you're not educating to the, to the, to the you know, ch children on the spectrum who are savant-level geniuses or the children in ADHD who are the warriors who can't sit still, right? There's different ways to talk to these people, and eventually we're going to figure out how to do this. So a lot of uh, children who are on the spectrum, are, um, they're, very good, they're very good at systematizing, right? Empathizing means that I, I, can, I can kind of feel what you're feeling, but that's not their gift. That, that social communication thing, that's what empathy is. Sim but, but systematize, they can systematize. They can put things together in order. They can make computer programs and write code and organize things and, and build things, engineers, th that kind of stuff. <clears throat> They're not very social, but who are we to judge if that's bad? Right? Saying someone's antisocial. Like, I remember that, that was a big thing when I was a kid. People were saying that you're social versus antisocial. But where is that written that you need to be social? Right? Why can't a person just be whoever they are? And that's the whole neurodiverse concept that Dr. Armstrong is trying to you know, bring out. An autistic child is really good at these kind of where's Waldo you know, sort of things. They're really good at details. That's their whole thing. They're exceptional at spatial uh, things. How many people have, have ever seen the movie Temple Grandin? Another great movie. Oh, wow. You should watch if you, if you Two best movies about autism. Uh, Rain Man, Temple Grandin. Temple Grandin, true story. She, is a, she was born a nonverbal autistic child. Um, her mom spent years working with her to get her uh, you know, back to, to talking. And now she's now a PhD in uh, animal husbandry. And she invented the, uh, the I guess this is a, a filing pen for, for cows. Uh, she figured out that cows do not like going in straight lines. They don't like angles and they don't like shadows. And she figured out that a cow would much rather go in a nice curved line and would follow its, you know, its way to, to the different pens by, by creating a path like this, by curved paths. So almost all the, the, um, the places that are the, the houses where they, they work with the, with the cows are all using her design. And she lectures around, around the country uh, now about this. She's written dozens of books. But Temple Grand, the, the movie's uh, on Netflix, by the way, if you're interested. Um, or at least it was. Uh, Rain Man isn't. But uh, it just it's, this is what they do. This is their gift, right? And here's the thing. She did not take engineering courses. She's not an architect. She, she drew this freehand, right? Because that's how their brain sees. Their brain sees in pictures. So she saw, some, she saw a blueprint, and she said, okay, I can just create what I want in a blueprint and just was able to make it. Where you and I would have to take like three years worth of classes to create this thing, right? Um, floor time is probably one of the most important things for these kids, and what helped... Temple Grandin and a lot of other children who are on the spectrum is something called floor time, which is most kids who are on the spectrum should spend more time on the floors than like in a desk. And what with floor time and the whole point with floor time and the, with sunrise, which is by Barry Neal Kaufman, um, uh, the whole point of this was to, to get into their world. So this is Rowan uh, Kaufman. This is him when he was five years old and a full-blown nonverbal autistic child. He is now a leader at um, 
their uh, institute up in, uh, in Massachusetts where he teaches other people how to help uh, children who are severely autistic um, kind of work their way out of it. And one of the main uh, things is floor time. So in other words, what they used to do, the, the parents, Barry and uh, Kaufman and his wife, uh, uh, Ron would just sit there and spin plates. And there's a, a movie about this too it's called Sunrise. He would just spin plates. So the two of them would take turns spinning plates with him. They'd sit down for hours at a time and they hired other people and friends and whatever to sit and spin plates you know, with him. Uh, and eventually he started looking at them as he was spinning the plates because he noticed that someone else was, in, was kind of doing what they were doing. And then eventually he started doing other things and they would do whatever he did. They would get into his world. So if he wanted to you know, crush some paper, they would crush paper. And eventually he actually started saying words because they started identifying plate, you know, plate. And eventually he started saying words and now the guy is fully verbal, graduated from high school, graduated from college and leads you know, the program that they have. It's called the Option Institute in Massachusetts. So what, the, the reason I want to show this to you is to get you to understand how important it is, number one, for you to study, right? To keep studying, whether it's autism that, that gets you or ADHD or sports or whatever it is, you've got to keep on studying, number one, because this stuff just doesn't stop. It doesn't stop just because you graduate, number one. And number two is that neurodiversity is critical to understand that autism, ADHD, has always been here. It's just the amount that's different, but it's our responsibility to help these children become the best that they can be, right? We want their brains to be optimized, right? Let's help the child who's on the spectrum become the best person they can be and help, help their brains become as social as possible, help their brains you know, work so that we can help them you know, become like the best version of themselves. Right? To me, that's the most important thing. I'll see you guys next week.